Welcome to Millennium Live, a digital diary podcast. We sit down with the top C-suite executives and talk all things digital transformation. Hi, everybody. I'm Alex Sobel, the co-founder of the Millennium Alliance. I uh, am here today with Suzette Kent, who's the former CIO for the federal government, doing a keynote for the upcoming February Digital Enterprise Transformation CIO Assembly, which is taking place on the 10th and the 11th of February. I'm super excited uh, to interview Suzette. She's got amazing experiences, a lot of which are relevant to some of the big topics of today and of the recent weeks that are going around inside the country right now. And we're not only thrilled to have her for the interview, but we're thrilled to have her for the keynote coming up, her experience, her wisdom on a number of the topics facing CIOs, both private and public sector, I know is uh, something that everybody's going to want to hear about. So Suzette, thanks so much for doing this. I've been looking forward to talking to you for a long time. I'm excited to, to hear what you have to say. Thanks, Alex. And I'm looking forward to talking with you as well. Okay, Hello, great. Your listeners. <laughs> Thanks, Suzette. So before I, I get into the kind of the meat of the stuff that you did in DC and some of your thoughts on things like cyber and you know technology modernization, some of the, the fun, integral parts of, of your job, I'm always curious with someone with such a distinguished career as yourself, how it all kind of came together, you know, where it started more about like kind of your personal background, what interests you when you were younger, because as our listeners may not know, you're a Louisiana native, proud, I'm sure, LSU alumni, and congratulations, they're still the defending national champions. I know, <laughs> Thank you. I know they're not having the best season, but they did have arguably the best season last year. So you guys, I know, can still Resiliency. hold on to that. Yeah. A lesson of resiliency. Yes, yes, for sure. But I know you're a Louisiana native, went to LSU. I saw that you you studied advertising and marketing. Before going into LSU, what, what you know, a little bit about your childhood, what, what your upbringing was like, and how that kind of set you on the path or things that you remember about growing up in Louisiana that kind of formulated your worldview. And did any anything that you experienced as a child give you any motivation to go in the direction that you did? Yeah. So I'll try to make this short and, and maybe fun for the listeners. And a part of, I've shared a little bit of this before, but I actually grew up in a really small town and was, you know, somewhat of a science nerd. My background was actually, you know, I started competing in science fairs and um, that was kind of a, a big path. So curiosity exploration, solving for things, very involved in things that were available, but was quite excited to go to LSU because of the massive footprint of students from all over the world and all of, you know, a much broader perspective. There are students from every state. There are students from all over the world. I got very involved in student government. As a matter of fact, uh, was involved in the student government with some of the folks who are our, uh, national leaders now. And it's kind of funny that that sparked both interest in a much broader, you know, footprint. And I actually went to college intending on majoring in biochemistry and going the medical side. Uh, I realized, though, that at that point in time, if I couldn't solve a problem, I didn't want that to be detrimental to another human. And it's kind of funny, I ended up in journalism advertising, and I had a minor in psychology and Latin because I was going on the medical path, but that was a point in time when there was a lot with use of data and graphic design. Sure. And so the whole, that's a little bit in the Wayback Machine, I'm maybe older than some of your listeners, <laughs> but that's when really using data to drive how you reach 
customers was starting to become a thing. And that was incredibly interesting to me. But when I graduated, I didn't know what industry I wanted to work in. Yeah, I kind of like, you know, probably many, many folks facing those decisions, whether it's coming out of school or, or at different crossroads in their lives, the, the what do I want to do when I grow up? And I still, by the way, ask that question all the time. Um, I went to work for Accenture because I knew I would have the opportunity to work across multiple different industries. And that is actually where I got into technology and particularly financial services. I worked in state and local government. I worked in retail. I worked in oil and gas projects for big, you know, Fortune 500 companies. But when I got to the financial services space, I loved it. That was a really cool point in time. Again, I'm somewhat aging myself, but interstate banking had just been rolled out. So we had operational and technical challenges to say, how do we operate consistently across state line and deliver common services? It's when online banking was rolling out. It's the first time, um, actually, some of my you know, best work and, uh, and the source of the couple patents were how we use images, check images, not paper anymore in business processes. That interest and excitement at taking technology and changing how you do business, delivering great service to customers, great return on investment, really laid a foundation for many of the things that I've done you know, from then on. So I've had opportunity to work around the world, whether it was in large core systems, whether it was in digital transformation, financial services, you, you mentioned cybersecurity has been you know, historically one of the most secure you know, industries, you know, they've had a lot of challenges. So they've had a, you know, high bar. And many of those things set the way that I approach business and career and through all those fantastic experiences, because I had the opportunity to do things that hadn't been done before, I'd interacted with a lot of state and federal government individuals, whether it was the portfolios for SNAP, TANF, and WIC, whether it was banking laws, whether it was consumer rights types of things. And those experiences and interactions, I had the opportunity also to work with some of the key technology leaders. When, when I look across uh, the companies in the world, when they were early in their careers too, you know, I, I will, a particular company that, you know, the, the CTO on our project is now their global CEO. I met, you know, a couple of individuals when they were running parts of the portfolio that, that now run many of these major companies and keeping those relationships and staying in contact with some of those individuals who, you know, have um, both vision and aspirations you know, to grow how we use technology in our world has also been an important part of the career. And through many of those relationships, people and experiences was the way I, you know, ended up having this opportunity. And, and I would be remiss. I grew up, I said, in a small town near an army base. My family was army, my husband, Navy. And so the importance of serving was something that was part of my, you know, entire life. So the opportunity to serve is an honor and something that I felt like, you know, as Americans, I'm not the person that's going to go to battle on the field. <laughs> I have other assets I can bring and sure. you know, contribute. So, all right. I tried to make that as fast as I could. No, that's the no. whole story. <laughs> no, you don't, you don't have to do that fast. I, I, I love this part when I, when I speak to people, at, you know, kind of at your level of your field. I love to know like how, you know, what, what it was like, you know, where you came from and how, like I had said before, your worldview, you know, came together. And I suspected you had a passion for serving and 
it's it's great to see kind of how kind of how it all came together. I'm curious, you know, there's always this kind of like push and pull with private sector, public sector, who does what better, what roles do each play. Was there similarities that when you got inside the federal government dealing with transformation and setting up new systems, dealing with legacy systems, did, did you see a lot of the same issues that you were facing when you were working in the private sector? Was, was, was the experience in the private sector, did that make you that much more effective, do you think, in your role once you got into public sector? What, what were some of the similarities and differences between your experiences in both? Yeah. You know, Alex, I, I would say this, the, the mandate when I came in was to try to move out of private sector and take some of the successes from pri private sector and translate those. You know, I'm not going to say you can look across, you know, private sector is not perfect either, but you can clearly see that they've moved at a quicker pace in many industries for modernization, particularly sure. for digital transformation and service. Different types of priorities. There's also they serve very different populations. And so some of the similarities were the true technology, the vendors that can operate at scale are very similar. They are much the same as the, the same vendors I've been working with. Uh, with In some cases, the same exact companies probably, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. Same exact company, yeah. same, you know, base kind of components of software, operating model, things like that. Those were very common. In just good technology practices, leading practices, you know, also, you know, very similar. What was incredibly similar, it's the most important thing, is citizen expectations. You know, citizens like you and me and our, our personal lives and all your listeners, how they expect to be served and consume services, that bar is set by all the experiences they have in, you know, in their day-to-day -day life. So when I have a great online experience, you know, ordering food to my door or setting up a new account at a bank or ordering a sweater, I expect when I'm dealing with any other entity online, to have that kind of high level of performance. And so the, the pandemic has made it even more important to have, you know, digital and contactless, whether it's payments or interactions or fulfillment, you know, all those types of things. The cultures and the, the human side is also very similar. Anytime you change what people are doing and what they're used to doing, there's the, whether you call it the stages of grief, because I've heard people call it that, but kind of the <laughs> stages of acceptance and how you move through that. And my experiences in doing that in companies with large footprints, with global footprints and many cultures, companies with different dynamics around how change was implemented. You know, I've done more than 30 mergers and acquisitions with financial institutions. Wow. I've worked across that plus more countries. And those experiences give you perspective around implementing change that is, you know, kind of technology based. And so, so bringing those things into to government, there were a lot of similarities. There were also the differences, you know, the differences, the hardest learning curve for me was understanding how money flows. And it is very, very different. <laughs> the timeline, the pace, the approval process, the processes that you have to go through. As an American, I gained a much better appreciation for people inside the government. And I've compared this before to, you know, like private sector CIOs sometimes get to run a sprint from the beginning to the objective. And the technology teams in government kind of have to run an obstacle course. 
Yes. They have to do the RFP this way and the RFI this way, and then they have to put this out for public comment, and then they have to do this, and then it, it, it was significantly more complicated. That does not mean we should accept a slow timeline, and we need to examine every one of those protocols. They were put in place for a reason, but sometimes that reason happened in 1965, and maybe we should re-ask, is that still applicable? But it was much more complicated, you know, it, it was much slower, and, you know, technology change itself is a change of business process, ecosystem, the people you're serving, and then how you, you know, track and measure. And all those things need to move at the same time. And, and getting those to move at the same time in a government enterprise is much more complicated, you know, and, and you have to change your kind of risk management environment, getting those to change in a government kind of public sector environment is much more complicated than private sector. And one of the things I was always curious about, or I was always fascinated by in a CIO role in general, whether, because, you know, our organization, we've been working with CIOs for years and um, majority on the private sector, but I don't think there's much difference here on the public sector, because as far as I understand in your role, each agency CIO rolled up into your group, right? And I always paid attention to the fact that CIO tenures weren't historically, for the, for the work that they were mandated to do, especially in the digital era, their tenures weren't as long as I would have thought they would be because I remember President Obama said once that trying to, cha- to make change inside the federal government, it's like moving a big cruise ship. You can't just move it in one kind of jolt. It, it takes a lot of time. And I think you were alluding to this in terms of processes and money and all sorts of maybe archaic rules that you have to you have to you have to abide by. It seemed like in what I was reading about the work that you were doing and you were mandated and what you accomplished, it was a, it was about a two year stint. I, I noticed that the trend, public or private sector, especially for some of the biggest things that people are taking on, the tenure is not that long. So my my question to you is: Do you think, in general, regardless of industry, that there's some there's some method to the madness in that? Do you think that that's kind of foolish? Do you think that is it because people get burnt out? I mean, I just, I never could get my head around why the CIO stints, for the most part that I've seen, meeting so many CIOs is, is just not that long. Well, okay, so you, you, you packed a whole bunch of stuff Go in ahead, there. Go ahead, so like, Let me take it in pieces. So, so first of all, just a kind of one operational thing for your, the, the, the folks who are listening and members. The federal CIO and the, the federal CIO's office is a policymaking office. So our main responsibility is policy and law that is currently exists, you know, to, to, to update policy and make it current. That was one of, you know, kind of my big focuses. And then ensure that laws that are in place are followed by the agencies. And then measurement, measuring how agencies are meeting those policies. In doing that, the federal CIO also chairs the CIO Council, the Technology Modernization Board, and, and a few other things. So it's not an operational CIO in the same way as an agency CIO. The law holds the agency CIO accountable for a couple of things. They are accountable to the secretary of their agency, and they're accountable to a set of law around protection of data on the federal networks, protection of the operation of those networks, and fulfillment of the policy and law and and delivery on administration priorities. So the working relationship is, is very interesting. And one of the things that, so, so I'm, I'm kind of trying to lay a foundation to answer your questions. 
of the individuals that are the CIOs of the agency, about half are career staff and about half are political appointees. So sometimes when you're thinking of the tenure, you might be seeing that the fact that the political appointees may turn over. A few of the positions, DOD, DHS, VA, have to be Senate confirmed. So that also creates kind of some, some timeline. You know, On the IT side, that is? Yes. Just to get the full team. One of the things I was really proud of, and if you go to CIO.gov and you look at the faces and names that are out there, you know, when I was in private sector, especially in banking, I'd often look around the room. I was the only woman or there were very few <laughs> and it wasn't a highly diverse. I think the number was like 15% leaders. And, you know, in fact, the first major bank just had a, it named its first female CIO in 2020. It's a diverse group, which is really, you know, fantastic. And the diversity in the government was always in the somewhere in the 20 to 30s, which, you know, if you look at whether it's, you know, Harvard Business Review or anyone's types of studies, you know, when you get diverse thinking, you get better results. You can it was a really great collaborative group. So the turnover is affected by the nature of the role, period, right? So you may see turnover because of political party, administration, whatever. It is a tough job. It is 24-7. I remember when I came in, they said, you're always on and you have no vacation. It's like, wow, that's, that's going to be great. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Also, it is incredible. It, just to mention, just to mention for your listeners, the federal technology publicly communicated budget is $92 billion. And if you actually look at job codes, there are more than 87,000 people in the federal government that have a, an IT role. Wow. Now, we know that the people affected by IT and that have to be involved in initiatives, as we talked about, is much bigger than that. So when you think about the number of people that have to be involved in that investment, it is a massive, you know, aircraft carrier. It is a massive enterprise. And, you know, let's, let's be really blunt. One of the things that you saw in the National Federal Cybersecurity Strategy, uh, or actually National Cybersecurity Strategy, the federal portion, but some of our other uh, elements that we tried to do to address there is a disparity in total compensation and there's a disparity sometimes in rescaling and and retraining so we end up in the federal side you know with open positions and in particular places you know federal employees because the work they do serve such a broad audience is so complex they're fantastic candidates for private sector and you'll see a lot of sure. people pick pick them off and, you know, I've had lots of conversations with individuals who were leaving, you know, you can, again, the OPM publishes attrition rates, you know, in certain roles that are in high demand, it's really, really hard to retain people inside the federal government. And most of them stay because of their deep passion for mission. So that is opportunity to fix both the reward system as well as, you know, I hope we take some of the lessons and some of the good things from remote working ability because when we allow a more flexible footprint, that is also a really important retention tool. So I, I ran through kind of a whole bunch of things there, but there are some fundamental reasons, you know, from a, just an operating construct why there's turnover. And then there's people reasons, you know, why there is significant turnover. I remember a few, was it a few years ago? I, I think maybe it was the Pentagon or the DOD. There was a... Um 
there was a fight, whether it was going to be Amazon or Microsoft that was going to be the cloud provider or how autonomous are the individual agencies and a decision at that scale? Or does the magnitude of a bit, I think it was like a $10 billion investment or but I'm just throwing down general things that I remember about the story because I want to talk to you about cloud because I know the federal government probably like financial services looking hindsight's 2020 may have been a little bit later to the game of cloud for, for obvious reasons, because, you know, for protection issues and, yeah. you know, the, the kind of anxiety of other people housing your data when it comes to public sector, financial services, even healthcare, it's reasonable to, to understand why those institutions were late to the, to the cloud game. Just a curiosity, when it comes to a huge decision about an individual agency investing billions of dollars or picking a cloud provider how much autonomy does the individual agencies get? Do they have to, does a lot of it have to go through your department? I mean, that's why I, I can't believe all that you got done inside two years, because that to me would take two years at least to try to figure that out. Well, yeah. So first of all, go back to when we were talking about kind of the law, they, they hold the agency secretary and the CIO accountable. So it is an agency's individual decision right? Here's the, within the framework of the policies and the law that are defined. So the process they follow, the criteria they use, the choices that are made still have to fit inside a certain framework. And that particular, you know, thing that you referenced, you know, I, I spent a lot of time, Dana, uh, you know, DZ, DOD CIO came mm-hmm. from industry. And at that point in time, his deputy CIO, Essie Miller, was a career individual. They had a fantastic set of perspectives, but at the very core, each agency, you know, at the, at the very simplest level, I should say, each agency has to make the decisions about technology that meet the mission of their agency and fall within that framework of law and criteria. So, you know, the criteria might say, you know, vendors have to be certified in certain ways and vendors have to demonstrate these type of capabilities and you have to run the process in this manner. But, you know, one of the really important parts of my role when I was in it is I'll use the word technology agnostic. We had to focus on, you know, the criteria and the expectations and ensure that there was fair and equal access, all companies who wanted to come in and say, hey, I can do that. So therein kind of is the balance. So, you know, the involvement is around framework and criteria and where those things done. Now, I'll add one other really important concept, and we are seeing, you know, some of those things, and I would put forth that we ought to really continue to advance our thinking in this space. Everything I talked about is an agency acting on behalf of the agency and around the appreciating the components that are unique to their mission. There are some things where we need to behave like an enterprise because those rules, those frameworks, and the technology expectations are so similar and in some cases so critical, we need to have some things that work across agencies. So you've already seen that in cybersecurity Mm -hmm. and the mission of CISA and managing uh, certain things as an enterprise. Shared services, the statement around shared services. Every federal employee is paid according to the same law. Why do they have different experiences based on the provider who pays them? Mm-hmm. You know, there, there are certain things that they, you know, do with the federal government where the rules are the same. So the experiences should be the same. So there's, there's an opportunity for us both from an efficiency and following that framework as well as improved citizen services to think more like an enterprise. 
when, when we say technology modernization, a lot of agencies are working kind of on their own infrastructure to bring that up. But we also saw things, here's a great example, when I say, uh, what do I think about from an enterprise perspective? We had a huge push for all the agencies to, to go to the cloud for email and for collaboration tools and you know comp- that kind of stuff. You know, thank goodness they all made great progress because that was critical when we moved to virtual operations during the pandemic. But what we found out was every agency had different sets of tools. So in some cases, when we all needed to get on a conference call, we could mm-hmm. connect. And we had to do different things. So, you know, I think there will continue to be an evolving conversation around what things should be mission specific and have, you know, no kind of enterprise perspective. And what things could we actually achieve a greater good if we took an enterprise perspective? You know, obviously with with the breach um, that's going on inside, that's happened to the federal government, most people have said they don't know what the ramifications are. They don't they don't think necessarily, even though they might have been penetrated, any serious sensitive material or classified material has been has been taken. I don't know how much you can answer about this. I'm just curious when you heard about this, were you surprised? Were like cause we cause you you had left what in the June timeframe? July. Oh, you left in July. Because when I knew I was going to interview, I was, I was wondering what someone like you was thinking. Like, were you surprised? Was there a misstep that, that someone did or that someone took that didn't protect the government enough? Were, what, what were your thoughts when you, when, you, when you heard about, even if there wasn't any sensitive material that was accessed, let's say, from Russia or from any other country, was it a surprising feat for you that, that someone was able to even get to where they did? It's something that's ongoing and I don't have the details, so I I can't comment. You know, the only thing that I will comment on is, you know, cybersecurity is an every single day sprint. You know, as soon as you secure one path, those who have, you know, nefarious intent, try another and try another and try another. And it reemphasizes all of the effort to be diligent, improve our tools, understand what goes on every day in the environment, and look really closely at anomalies. So I am just a regular citizen now, like everyone else. So kind of watching what happens from here, you know, what we learn, and know that swift action needs to be taken. For sure. In terms of, because a lot of what I know CIOs focus on in general and technology leaders is dealing with old technology, legacy modernization. Is it one of those things where you're committed to doing the, like for technology leaders, especially in a role like you were in, you do the best you can with what you got, but it's almost an impossibility to get ahead because technology changes so fast and threats change so fast. And because especially inside the federal government, it's designed to go slow, right? I think the natural design in government is for there to be debate for things to be complicated and to really know and to make sure before you do anything. But that's not how that's not how it works in the in the digital world. So what, what, I'm, what I'm basically asking is, is that it seems like IT leaders and people in IT are always, it's a sprint, but it's also a marathon. You're never stopping to run because you're always dealing with unforeseen issues. And in essence, you're always dealing in some sense with dated technology. Again, you, you like to ask really packed up questions. Sorry. Um, the threat environment is persistent and just as innovative as those who are trying to protect against. 
So I don't think of it in terms of losing and getting ahead. I think of it in terms of how do you maintain a high level of vigilance constantly, right? It, it never stops. And that, that's actually something that I spent a lot of time talking to people inside the federal government about is it never stops. It, it's not a project that we finish. It never stops. It's we've done this thing. What's the next thing? What's the next thing? What's the next thing? The job becomes easier, or, the, or should I say the challenges decrease sometimes with more modern technology. But CIOs have to make really complicated decisions when they look at, and I'm just going to use a, an example, if I'm a particular agency and I have a thousand applications and I use about 60% of those, you know, someone in my agency touches day to day and 40%, you know, less and you know, of that 40%, a portion are really, really old, but I only have enough money to touch a certain number. I only have enough capacity to do a certain amount of things in a year. They have to make risk-based decisions. And the risk is considered on the type of data, the sensitive, you know, natures of certain processes, the number of people impacted, all kinds of different things. There are some specific frameworks that are around evaluating higher risks that agencies go through. But those are understandings and judgment. And, and it's about how, how quickly you can get through some of those things. Operationally, there's a lot of things that, have, that are now you know, moving faster and the federal government has actually done better on. I would also say as we advance digital capabilities, we have to advance the tools that we use with those. And that might mean identity protocols. That might mean network construction. That might mean securing the supply chain in a way that is very different. You know, you, there's some legislation, some activities out there in that space. And those are all things that, that have to be done simultaneously in this battle. And it comes down to risk-based decisions and funding. And those are the really important conversations, you know, that are never going to end. Speaking of funding, how much of your role was fighting for more budget or trying to show rationale for, because it sounds like, I think um, we were talking, you know, 90 plus billion dollar budget to someone like me, it seems like a lot of money. I don't know if that's enough or... All the time. There, there seems to be a fight no matter what happens on, on Capitol Hill about money. And some people, it seems to be the constant fight of the day. So how, how much of your role was talking about funding? Well, the, part of the reason the federal CIO sits in OMB, right, is because you're, you're with the budget teams. And I'm going to use the word <laughs> vigorous discussion, right? There, there's only X amount of money that an agency has to do the things that they need to have. Many of what I will call my discussions and interactions, whether it was the senior leadership at the agency or those in Congress who were making actual budget decisions, was about what is the value of this spend? And so how do I tell the story, right? If I, if I started talking to them about why we're going to do this technology versus this or what, the conversation closes down. If I talk about the fact that we are protecting citizen information or that we're going to increase the efficiency of this set of activities, therefore you're going to have more funding for mission or that you're going to accomplish, you know, the mission I'll use a great example. There was a, a particular process between three agencies that generally took 30 to 60 days and we were able to get it down to 18 hours wow. through use of improved technology. So, so my discussions were more about that because those were the types of things that people could get their head around. And that 
Alex is actually a great space for, for people like your team. It was a good space for interaction with the media. And it was really important for uh, some of the, the public transparency is to tell the story of what are the results being achieved and what did we actually do, you know, with that money. And, you know, anytime Congress and an agency leader are making decisions about funding, they're choosing one thing over the other. We never run out of things to do. It's just mm-hmm. what is the top priority. And so that's what the discussion was about is what are we making a priority and, you know, how quickly are we going to go at, you know, those certain actions? What would you say was the, the thing in your role that surprised you the most that you didn't see coming that, you know, I'm sure just like anybody you hear stories about what it's like to work inside the federal government, even in a leadership role, trying to probably go in and, and picture everything that you were going to face. What was something that you can think of that kind of caught you by surprise or that you really worked, or maybe you thought to some extent would happen, but you didn't, you didn't think it to the magnitude that it did? Well, it, it's all kind of in that funding space. So, yeah. so think about um, the budget for the federal government is done almost a year to two years ahead of when you actually spend the money. So it's like you're making a budget based on a crystal ball. You're making an assumption that all the things you plan this year are going to happen, and then that's going to be on pace, and then you know the things next year. And the way that it's managed is to provide, you know, transparency and all those types of things and the approval processes and, and that pace. It's really a point of friction when you consider the pace of technology. So some of the things, you know, in government don't move at the pace of technology. I mean, and here's a, here's a funny kind of like easy thing for some of your listeners to think about. You know, one of the measures of, you know, are you maintaining, you know, software is are you doing updates every six months? Six months? Are you kidding me? Like six hours yeah. on some stuff. But that's just, that's an example of, you know, the pace of technology. And in a lot of places, you know, there have been some great partnerships with vendors. If they get threat information out from private sector, from another country, from whatever, and they come share that with us, can we move quickly on it? How do we do certain things where we can be agile and resilient? And maybe that's the key takeaway from this question is agility, resiliency, and innovation. Those concepts are really hard to make work with some of the other operational procedures, you know, that exist. And again, I like to say, not just throw out a problem, but say, what do we do about it? You know, what we do about it is we have to keep, we have to continue to examine the law, the policy, and the measures that we look at against, you know, those particular things, whether it's a scorecard, whether it's a procurement process, or whether it's the flexibility of working capital funds, which, you know, I've been a massive advocate, you know, for those, for agencies to promote, you know, more flexibility and improved efficiency of spend. You know, those are things that we have to keep pushing on so that we can at least, you know, kind of collapse the gap between the set of actions and the funding for those actions or the resources period for those actions. And in your estimation, heading into the kind of the, the next decade that we're in, if you could pinpoint just in a general sense, what the federal government, when it comes to technology, what the big objectives are, or what they need to be, what would you say? What comes to top of mind? Well, that's a layup question because then I get to pick some of my favorites. <laughs> but, well, I asked you. I asked you some lengthy. I asked you some lengthy questions. I figure I give you a good one. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that was most 
excited to work on inside the federal government was the federal data strategy and use of automated technologies. And when I say that, that, is, that yes, that's AI and machine learning, but that's also, you know, RPA, it's natural language processing for, you know, servicing functions, it's image capabilities, it, it, it's business intelligence, all those types of things. That thing we just talked about around that pace of change, better data and automation and, and think about all the connected devices that we have that are gathering information, right? The, the ability to pull all those together means the pace is going to get faster, but it's also going to be much more important that we can monitor and we understand what's going on. Those have massive promise, but with that, if we don't make the investments in the people that support the end-to-end -end process, and again, I'm not just saying the technologists, but those who use it in the business process, those who understand the integration between mission serving and the appropriate use of technology tools, if we don't make the investments in people, and continue to upskill, recruit, and diversify our workforce in the federal government, we're not, we're, we're gonna have a challenge using some of those capabilities that move at that type of pace, but also have so much power. In regards to talent, because now it seems that everything is so political and there's, you know, there's, there's so much going on around government at any level, but especially at the federal government. Do you think that there's any reason to worry about there being a lack of interest for really smart, capable people, especially in the IT world, coming into the federal government? Or is it such a rewarding enough experience that people kind of, how, how much, I guess it's a double question. That, that's one side of it. Do you think the desire is still there for people coming out of college, coming from the private sector, or wanting to work in this way inside the federal government with IT? And my second question to that is, how much do people, especially inside, you know, the building that you worked in, are, are they able to kind of stay, kind of not get distracted by the noise of the day of DC? And is it the environment so that you, no matter what's really going on, on outside of you, you're able, you're able to get your job done and you're not distracted by the noise? Yeah, there are amazing, highly competent, you know, professionals inside the federal government. And there is not a lack of people who want to serve and people who are passionate about mission. Probably the best part of my job every day and the things that like I'm, I'm actually still doing in private side come from that passion around mission. I don't think that is the challenge or necessarily ever will be because we have a nation and a culture of people who want to do better and want to fix problems. And that's exciting. The challenge is how do we get people to stay and, and, and stay long enough? Or how do we construct things where short tours of duty can have the right level of impact, but, but there's still a pathway forward? And that's some of the things with rewards. That's some of the things with the friction <laughs> I'll call it, of coming in and out of government, you know, that movement between public and private sector is, is a little bit harder than, you know, it should be across all levels. Yeah, it may seem easy at some levels. It's not like that at, that at every level. It's not even easy to move between agencies, right? Yeah. That, that's some of our kind of internal stuff that we can do. So I remain positive and invigorated by the people who are exciting 
or who are excited to work for government and want to come in and work on challenges, but they have to have the modern tools and resources to get things done or they get burned out. And they have to have pathways in and pathways out that don't feel like beating your head against a concrete wall, but that also that's not disruptive to the workforce that's in place. And those are some of the, the challenges that, you know, when I, when I mentioned that word about operating like an enterprise, we have some opportunities to do that. And we have some ways that we can make those places where that's working, we can further expand that. So, I mean, I could talk to you forever. I find this stuff so fascinating, One, partly because my brain doesn't, I don't have that part of my brain that works in a way that could put an Ikea thing together, let alone trying to put together some of the things you and your team were working on from an IT perspective. So I just, I appreciate that so much because it's just not, it's not part of my, it's not part of my skill set. but you've had such a great career personally, professionally, private sector, public sector. What, what, what is someone now that, you know, you've had great accomplishments, you've seen things from two different perspectives. Do you have anything that like that you're focused on that's important to you to achieve now? Like where, where, where are you spending your time? What, what, what's kind of in the next chapter for you? Well, Alex, I told you at the beginning, I still ask the question every day, what am I going to do when I grow up? <laughs> because I do feel like that. And, and uh, I've been on, you know, different things when people say, you know, talk to me about your career path and your plan. And a lot of it, it didn't plan. Opportunities came up and it was like, wow, you know, this, this is really interesting. Um, and, and I let both the two things, my family priorities and, and places where I'm passionate and I think I can make a contribution drive those. So right now, you know, I, I've had some family things that I needed to focus on that had something to do with, you know, my timing for coming back to the state of Texas. But I'm also continuing to work on how we build a technology workforce of the future for our nation that can serve all industry. So whether it's private sector or government, and I'm doing that through involvement with technology companies and university foundations and university groups. Um, you met, you know, obviously uh, LSU is, yeah. is uh, a place that I love spending time and putting some energy, but, you know, also working with others. I, I am also uh, working with growing companies, those who are focused on, serving their communities in new and innovative ways that stimulate, you know, our economy and kind of individually working also with some state and local government individuals for many of the same challenges. They're common in federal. They just get harder and harder in state and local governments because they have fewer resources. It's much more difficult you know, we talk about gaps in roles in federal government. It's harder for state and locals, you know, as well. Their funding models are different. But mm. there are many of the things that are federal-related services, healthcare, government benefit programs that are actually delivered by our states. Uh, it, it may be a federal program, but the person who touches the citizen and works with the person who is either vulnerable or in need is actually in the states. And so, you know, we saw the, the gaps with unemployment, you know, mm -hmm. right as the start of the pandemic. But that's one example of places where we need to use technology to fill a gap to make sure those who need certain services can get those quickly, efficiently, and consistently. Those are uh, kind of the fun things. And, and as for some of the rest of what's next, still thinking about it. 
Yeah. Well, I can't thank you enough. And I, I thank you enough before the interview talking a little bit about DC and the White House and all the cool things that you got to experience. If you were in your role, I would have figured a way to nag you for a, uh, for a tour or something cool like that. But Suzette, thanks so much. I loved chatting with you. I've been looking forward to talking to you for a long time. Congratulations on a great career. I know there's a lot more that you've got left that you want to achieve. And I'm sure just like with everything, there's no doubt that you'll make, you'll make a lasting impression. I'm sure the listeners and members are looking forward to your keynote in February. I know I am. I wish it was in person because it'd be great to meet. And, you know, our events are cool. They're at nice places, but, you know, we're doing the best we can. And, and um, best wishes to you and your family during the pandemic. Thanks for spending some time with me. I really appreciate it. Alex, it was fun talking to you too. You have to get the book, Palace Estate. I've got it. I wrote it down. It'll be ordered in the next 10 minutes. All right. If you have any other good book recommendations, let me know. I will send those to you. Well, I appreciate the the time that your listeners give to thinking about some of these challenges and some of the, some of the areas where there's still so much more to do. And uh, I guess I'll get to talk to you again in February. And I wish we were there together too. Feels kind of it, it's going to be a lot more fun when we get to see everybody again. Well, I'm sure I'm sure this won't be the first time we work together. But thank you so much. Thank you. Don't forget to subscribe to Millennium Live, a Digital Diary podcast. All episodes are available on Digital Diary by going to mel-all.com.